All right, good afternoon. Um, it's a privilege to be here. My name is Dave McCann. I've been with AWS for five years, and I run engineering for a bunch of services that include uh, control tower, service catalog, migration services, and marketplace. And later on, I've got Bob Wilkinson, our GM um, for CloudWatch, who'll be joining us. And then we're very fortunate to have Tristan Baker, who is a chief architect at Intuit over their data lake, who's going to really give you the icing on the cake at the end of the talk. And um, in the next 55 minutes, we want to give you the ability to think about leaving with a better way to think about a cloud operating model as you build out your applications at scale. And uh, I hope you can understand my Scottish accent. And if not, um, they say that we're unintelligible, so I, I apologize. And by the way, this is the first uh, management and governance track. This is my sixth reInvent. But Phil Curran was mentioning this is actually the first full management and governance track. So thank you for coming along and showing interest. Let's talk about cloud operating models. Every company has an operating model. Different companies have a name for it. How do you match your business processes with your IT resources? How do you match your business processes with applications? And how do you get the velocity of innovation to give your company advantage? And right now, with the shift to cloud, everybody's trying to optimize an operating model. And with your application portfolio moving to the cloud, there's a lot of discussion of what we would say is a cloud operating model. You may do it for purposes of customer experience. You may do it for cost efficiency. And companies in all sorts of industries are seeking to optimize that model. And in the 21st era, 21st century era of software, every business is becoming a software business. Every process is expressed in software, all the way down to the consumer on the mobile. And with distributed services and microservices and cloud architectures, the granularity of what you have to manage, the elasticity of what you're managing, and the high cardinality of the detail that you have to be aware of all the time is growing exponentially. And we need to build a set of tools to let you operate your infrastructure and your applications for the benefit of your organization. Now, as companies move to the cloud, and we're tracking and observing companies as they move to the cloud, you start building new applications in a cloud-native way. And your developers begin to learn, if you look at all the studies from a Puppet or a 451 or a Cisco, that your developers realize tremendous productivity gains in feature velocity development. You begin to move to a CICD model for some of your application development. And you realize the quality and the speed with which you can build new applications. But put yourself in the role of your CIO. And your CIO has, let's say, between 100 and 2,000 applications. And your portfolio is not yet on the cloud in totality. So you don't have all your developers working in a CICD model. And so you realize the benefits of cloud development in a native way. You begin to look at migrating your applications. And as Andy said earlier this morning, you're transforming your business. You're prioritizing the applications to move. And then as you move those applications over, you're modernizing. You may be going to containers. You may be going to serverless. And the diversity of how your applications are running requires a whole new approach to management and governance. Now, we believe in innovation. We want to give you the ability to innovate on behalf of your company or your government organization. And in order to give you that agility, we still have to give you the ability of confidence over risk, over security, and over compliance with policy. So how do we balance these tensions of innovation with agility, with experimentation, and at the same time, particularly in a world of distributed teams, how do we know that what you're provisioning out to teams is well 
uh, orchestrated, well provisioned, so that your developers can go at speed. And we have to resolve for both. And so if we think about how we're building tools at AWS, we're clearly building everything in a cloud-native model, APIs everywhere, SLAs on the APIs, distributed APIs, distributed services, an application becomes a collection of distributed services. And we have to be architecture agnostic. You may be building some of those apps using Lambda, and it's a pure serverless app. It could be a Kubernetes orchestrated model. And of course, as of this morning, you might be leveraging Fargate with Kubernetes. But we also have to recognize increasingly that you've still got data and applications on-prem. And we've done a number of things over the last few years at the network layer to connect your resources on-prem to cloud. But I think there's more that we can do. And above all, as companies learn to copy what AWS does, and I've given a lot of talks on change, customers want to be going to small teams, they want to be going fast. And so you're building out infrastructure for distributed teams all around the world who aren't on your time zone and have to know that what they're being provisioned with meets all of the standards. So this is a new way that we want you to think about the collection of services that we're building out for what we call management and governance. And in fact, last year, uh, my team were building Control Tower. And just before reInvent, we had a big discussion about what do we call this in the console? And we made a very conscious decision to call it management and governance. It was previously called management tools. But we discussed where did governance go with management. And management and governance have to go hand in hand. And then as you look at the 15 services that we currently classify as management and governance services, there's really an enablement layer where we're going to talk about account provisioning and policy around account. There's resource provisioning. So we call enablement of the account, provisioning of the resources. We'll talk a little bit what we're doing on CloudFormation. We'll talk about service catalog. I'm going to hop over to Marketplace a little. And then Bob's going to talk about all the things that we do at operational level. And we have to think about all the ways these work together, along with IAM and security. And we're not going to cover Security Hub today. There's a whole separate track on security. There's not enough time to jam that in. But think of Security Hub as a sister product to some of the other services here. And we're building out those services in a thoughtful way with a maximization of automation to make your life a little easy as you build out resources on, on the AWS cloud. Now, as we do that, I also want you to think if you're new to AWS, and some of you are probably well along the journey to migration, we've been building out this set of services since 2008. And you know, Bob actually owns the foundational management service, which was CloudWatch, launched in 2008. And over the last 11 years, we've launched 15 different services, including most recently uh, Control Tower. Two years ago, we'll get into organizations. And we're launching new features from these teams all the time, over 80 feature launches this year. So there's a lot that we're constantly iterating out to give you the ability to manage resources at scale. And companies from financial services like Goldman Sachs or Australia uh, Commonwealth Bank, all the way to the drug companies like a Pfizer, or a Bristol-Myers Squibb, over into Telco with a Verizon, who was on stage with Andy, all the way into government, where we have the UK National Health Service, or where you have the Bahrain e-government, or you have the FDA in America, or the VA. Every industry, oil and gas with BP and Shell, all industries are using our tools to manage their fleets of applications, and their or portfolio of applications and fleets of instances. Now, the other thing we're going to hear from Tristan at the end is that every customer builds their own service management framework. We build a set of tools, but you bring your own favorite tools, and your developers have all got preference. 
And one of the other things we have to do for you in order to make it a high quality experience is to really integrate with these other tools because you're all picking your own environment, whether it's a GitHub or a GitOps or whether it's a Jenkins or a CloudBees or a Cloud Conformity who just merged with Train Micro or somebody like a ServiceNow, you all bring your tools of choice and right down into the performance monitoring space with the new Relica and App Dynamics. And on average, we see a customer with 30 or 40 tools running on top of our services. And so we have to do more there in order to give you a, an ability to manage. And today we have over 140 management and governance partners. I also run the AWS Marketplace, and I'm pleased to say that 75% of them are actually in the catalog called Marketplace, and you can provision them right into your account out of Marketplace. But everybody from a CloudBees who's doing a lot of work over containers to the ITSM vendors like a Chairwell or a ServiceNow, and all over to the spend management space, because part of governance is are you on budget? So you have the Aptios, the Cloud Health, the Cloud Abilities, the Cloud Checkers, because if you're doing a good job of tagging, not everybody is, if you are doing a good job of tagging, then spend has to be tracked back to budget as part of governance. So this is kind of the ecosystem framework that I want you to think about first that we see a number of companies establishing. And whether you're a small company and you've only got a few accounts and you've got 20 or 30 applications on AWS, to the largest global customers, Cox Automotive have got 9,000 applications and they're about 35% migrated onto AWS, monitoring everything on a, with New Relic in combination with CloudWatch. So whether you're migrating 9,000 applications or you've got 50 applications, we need to give you the tools to govern and innovate at speed. So having taken that landscape of how we're building for you, I'm now going to click down into the enable layer and the provision layer, and then I'll have Bob come up and we'll cover the operate layer. And then we'll have Tristan exemplify how he actually puts it into practice at Intuit. Let's start to talk about how we want you to set up your environment. Now, when we first launched AWS 2006, and I joined in 2014, you know, one of the customer comments was, you've got a tremendous number of services, and you tell us there are many ways to do things. And as customers look at AWS, a comment might be, there's an overwhelming choice. Please don't put us through overwhelming choice. The ask was, become far more opinionated. And in reInvent 2016, our global account team under Kuhn Bigelar, who's an SA there, talked about something called a landing zone. And it was an oil customer, oil company CIO, who literally said, we'd like you to give us a very secure zone on which we can land applications. It coined a term called landing zone. And over the last three years, we've become much more opinionated about account structure, about resource structure, and about how we provision resources, identity, and accounts. And in the model now, if you're a new customer coming to AWS, we want you to start with Control Tower. But you may be well along a journey already with a large number of accounts. And so we want you to be thinking about how you set up your account model, your account hierarchies, how we tie in SSO and identity. And you heard us make announcements last week about SSO now supporting into Azure AD. And then we want to give you multiple mechanisms for establishing guardrails. Is it across an OU? Is it down at the team level? And then how do we give you that compliant automation so that you can get on with your day job? And this is a continuous exercise. So the two services that really are in the enablement layer are organizations and control tower. Organizations was launched in February of 2017. 
We have a large number of customers like Capital One, John Deere, and Intuit who are using the power of organizations where you can establish policy at an OU level and you can have SCPs, service control policies, to establish and enforce policy across a set of accounts inside an OU rather than doing it account by account. And that's important when you think that you're probably going to be landing 70, 80, or 90 AWS services into 100, 200, 300, 400 accounts. So there's a lot of policy setting that we want to automate. On the second side, we have Control Tower. And out of the landing zone work that our Solution Architects team did, and we launched something called ALZ, which is a Solution Architect solution, was the idea to productize that. And last year, we made a decision to productize Control Tower. And Control Tower is the simplest model of setting up a set of accounts. Now, we're becoming very opinionated across AWS on how we want you to optimize your account model. And if you want to take a picture of any slide in this talk, take a picture of this one. This is the end state of where we anticipate we will get you over the next year or two. And so the organizations team is becoming the North Star of AWS for policy of how to think about account models. And we work and we have monthly meetings between control tower teams, service catalog, organizations, SSO, on how to think about your account hierarchy. We used to talk about core accounts. We're now going to be talking about foundation accounts, the separation of duty and responsibility between dev and prod, the security and access and logging capabilities, and then a set of potential additional OUs that you may want to set up. And it's important that we guide you on this journey in order to make management and governance easy as you have many environments, many teams, and many resources. And so this is kind of a movie in play, and all service teams are aligning around this approach. Now, a couple of things that were done in the last year, service control policies being applied at the organizational OU level is a great way to establish a specific service-specific mandate across a set of accounts. And Tristan's going to talk about how he does that at Intuit. And this is kind of the, the most broad footprint policy control that we can give you. If you move over to Control Tower, Control Tower integrates with nine other AWS services. And there we give you the granular ability to vend out new accounts and to apply policy to the group of accounts that you're vending out. And we do tight integration with Config and CloudTrail and CloudWatch such that we give you the ability to apply specific policy. And there are 37 policies when we launched Control Tower. We launched with 18. We added 12 later. We've since added seven more. And a bunch of them, 18 of them, are preventive policy. And the rest are detective policy. And I'm pleased to say and pre-announce today that Control Tower has been vending new accounts to a new OU. And what everybody wants is to be able to vend new accounts to an existing OU. So I can tell you today that in early Q1, Control Tower will be releasing the ability to vend new accounts to the existing OU. And then secondly, what a lot of customers want is to be able to apply guardrails to an existing account in an existing OU. There's a little more work to be done there, and we're working on that, and our intention is to release both of those in Q1. And pictorially, this is another good example if you're not using Control Tower to see the difference between how we set up accounts and how we think about guardrails. And accounts and guardrails, an account is a resource boundary. 
and the guardrail is a specific policy enforced by one of a number of mechanisms, and then you have to decide what the guardrails are that you're going to publish out to a team. And if you change healthcare with the cloud engineering team in Seattle and developers in nine locations around the world, and you've got 60 teams, this is where you publish best practice on policy to distributed teams. So the idea here is to propagate in a publish and subscribe model. It's not so much command and control, but we'll get into that. And then what do we do now as you provision resources? So tool one for provisioning on AWS, as you probably all realize, is CloudFormation. And CloudFormation has now got over a million active customers using CloudFormation to actually describe and provision resources. And as each service team launches a new service, it's the obligation of the engineering leader on the new service to make sure that we interoperate with CloudFormation. And CloudFormation is integrated and supporting now over 100 of our services. So we're taking that work away from you, and it provisions up to 400 different resource types across your AWS fleet. So now we've got a JSON YAML toolkit. Everybody's using it. And it's really good at automating AWS resources. But most of you are running other custom tools, other custom resources on top of AWS. And last week, we released something called CloudFormation Registry. Now, this is a really big expansion of the capability of CloudFormation. What it means is that you, as an organization, or your managed service provider or your systems integrator of choice can now use a new SDK that we published up into GitHub on the 14th of November. And it allows you to build custom resources to describe the resources of a third-party environment or third-party resource, but have them fully addressable by the power of the CloudFormation tool. And that registry can be populated by third parties. You can pull those data in. We're going to run a fast demo to show you how it works. And the thing for me that fascinates me here is the potential that this gives you for all your other business partners that you're using. So we've already started working with 12 software companies. And for example, Fortinet does a lot of work in security, and they've created a Fortigate admin role as an external custom resource. They've published it into the registry. And instead of you having to do several weeks' worth of work to integrate Fortinet into your environment, that's all now published into the CloudFormation registry. You can pull down the custom resource. And all the tools that we give you in our governance model with both Config, CloudWatch, and Systems Manager can now invoke actions and monitor results against a custom resource. And Fortinet did the work. And we already actually have 12 companies that have published into the registry. And in the last week since we announced this, we've been on the phone with dozens of others who are now working on custom resources. This is going to make your life a lot easier for managing third-party resources on top of your AWS stacks. And the average large customer, by the way, runs 500 software vendor products on top of AWS. Now, another provisioning tool that's really important is Service Catalog. And Service Catalog creates an immutable template. It takes that CloudFormation template. But now, as a Service Catalog admin, I can lock down policy on that provisioned template. And I can publish it out to my team in Sweden, or my team in Israel, or my team in Sydney. And this competence level of that re remote team to use that template is a lot lower. And a lot of customers are using this to provision things like EMR clusters to data scientists, or to provision SageMaker models 
to data engineers. And so Service Catalog was designed between the Marketplace team and the CloudFormation team using the back-end catalog but with a front-end console. And so we allow Service Catalog to give you this invocable resource launch but control what the end user can do with that template. And there are a set of users in every organization that you don't expect to be expert, and there are a set of people in your organization that are very expert. And in some organizations, they actually don't want anybody launching anything out of a console. And so on Service Catalog, we've written a full integration into ServiceNow, a full integration into BMC, and last week, we released a full integration into Atlassian Jira Service Desk. So in the development world, people like to be using Atlassian. And in the post-production world, end users tend to be under the control of permissioning out of a ServiceNow workflow. And so we have to be able to invoke resources through an API, map user and role into the template and apply policy on the template. And in Service Catalog, in this quarter, we've expanded the cross-account sharing to up 1,000 accounts. If you'd like more than 1,000 accounts, come and let us know. And we've stood up a new library of multi-region reference implementation templates. There are six templates in a new library that when you provision into Service Catalog, you'll find a global library of best practice templates. And we're going to be populating more best practice templates into that catalog. And so by giving you these templates, along with custom resources, we're making it easier for you to govern at scale. And then finally, another provisioning tool that we have is Marketplace. Marketplace is a Dynamo-based catalog. We run it as a managed service. It's running in 20 regions worldwide. And tomorrow I'll be discussing how many more vendors we're putting in here. But at this conference, we're launching another 200 products from another 100 vendors that are pre-packaged sitting in the catalog. There are 400 of them that are already pre-wrapped in a CloudFormation cluster. And if you subscribe to the software and it's an AMI-based model, you can copy to Service Catalog and we'll auto-generate the JSON template for you and move it over into Service Catalog as a provision product. And so this is another provisioning resource you can entitle direct into your account. You can bring a license from some vendors that you already have. And we're simplifying the provisioning layer. So you've enabled your accounts for your teams. You've set up your policies and your guardrails. Now you want to provision product into teams. And we have over a million active subscriptions in Marketplace. And that's rising as we add more and more vendors. And from a governance point of view in the last year, we've done three additional things for governance at scale. While we've expanded the catalog in Marketplace to over 7,000 product listings, the average customer wants to offer their engineering team somewhere between 50 and 100 tools. So you can go into private Marketplace, and as an IEM role as admin of private Marketplace, you can actually curate down your preferred vendors and your preferred products for John's team or Helen's team or David's team such that they get access to the only the tools you want. Secondly, and I just met with a customer earlier, as you launch software, sometimes you do have to let procurement know. And so we've written an integration into both Ariba and Coupa so that Ariba and Coupa have a registry of what has been purchased and the PO can match what's being built out of Marketplace. 
And then three weeks ago, we launched AMI Tag Inheritance, so that now if I'm launching an AMI-based resource on top of an EC2 instance that's already tagged, I'm going to take that EC2 instance tags with cost center, project, or budget, and we'll inherit those tags as you're running your resources. It goes into your cost and usage reports, and you can be pulling it out of a Cloudability, a Cloud Health, a Cloud Checker, or an Aptio. So visibility is part of governance. So this is kind of the enable and provision layer of what we're doing. Now, covered a lot there, we're flying fast, there are sessions later. Um, so that you actually believe that this is true, instead of dragging up a bunch of people and doing a 19-minute demo, we did the cook the software last week exercise. Um, let's see if it works. And what we're gonna start having running here, and I believe it is running, Phil, and let's see if the mouse moves. Oh, there we go, good. Um, PowerPoint has not hung. So you're now in the service catalog console. What I've actually already done is we've pre-provisioned two things, Ops Genie as a resource type using custom resource. And we've also installed the Atlassian connector to service catalog. And I'm now gonna go from service catalog over to Jira service desk, register a task or an issue that I'm going to be launching Ops Genie and I'm setting up a team, could be a remote team with two users to be using Ops Genie in a particular account and it's already set up in service catalog as what we call a provision product. Now, we're going directly from service catalog up into the Atlassian environment. We establish the specific parameters to this particular deployment. And then I'm going to be cutting back over from Jira, Jira service desk. I'm going to be mapping my users into a serverless stack that I want to provision with the Ops Genie team. And this is all being done using the power of CloudFormation, Service Catalog, and the custom resource connector that has actually been written by the Ops Genie team and the integration that we've done between Atlassian and Service Catalog. Now, if you were doing this on your own, this would take you about two months worth of work. And what we've now got is a custom resource in a registry, a pre-built integration. We're now gonna come over into config we're actually going to check with config whether what's happening in the deployment is working well. And so now we're using config to monitor and look at the custom resource that we've been launching, which came from Ops Genie. So now I'm using another tool with a custom resource. It's visible in the tool. I can see where I am on that resource. And where we're going to end up at the end of this three minutes and 12 second session, if I can keep it on time, is I'm actually going to take you to a visualization screen that is gonna be coming from a tool that Bob's gonna be covering, which is a new CloudWatch capability, where we're actually going to do visualization, post-escalation and config, we're gonna move out of config, and then we're gonna go over to the CloudWatch console after I've been in config checking what I'm doing, go back to CloudFormation, and you can see the stack that I've launched, and the resource types that I'm using. I'm going to mark it as a private resource type. And here's your Atlassian Ops Genie integration that has been stood up as a custom resource, and the vendor has built the code for you. And that's now published in the registry, and any company in the world can be using that custom resource. And if you think of it, with 140 management and governance tools, the opportunity is for all vendors to publish this type of custom resource in the registry for you to pull down and have visible to both CloudFormation and then launchable by Service Catalog. And then finally, what we're going to do is we're going over to CloudWatch, and this is a new visualization that Bob's going to be talking about called CloudWatch Service Lens, which is actually going to allow you to look directly into what resources are attached to that launched configuration 
There is the serverless stack along with the Ops Genie capability. Now, all of that was probably two months worth of work and our team working with Atlassian pulled it off in about three days. And so with that, I want to pass over to Bob to move from enable and provision, and now we're going to operate. Bob, thank you. Thanks, Dave. It's super exciting to be here at reInvent again and help share our vision for the management and governance portfolio with you. I'm just going to pop this slide back up quickly to level set on where we are. We're now in the operate section. As in other sections, I won't have time to cover every service and every launch, so I'm going to focus on key launches from CloudWatch, CloudTrail, Config, and Systems Manager. Before I go into service-specific updates, just I want to talk about some stats that we talk about publicly. So Amazon CloudWatch is a service that's in use by well over a million customers, and it's processing a mind-boggling one quadrillion metric observations per month. Now, for any math majors out there, this is a one with 15 zeros at the end. It's a massive number. Next, Systems Manager has over 10 million actively heartbeating instances that it's managing, both Windows and Linux. And in the next hour that I'm going to talk, CloudTrail will have processed another 16 billion API events at this published rate up here. So we talk about these stats to give you confidence that this is the scale that we're operating at as AWS. We're ready for any scale you can bring us. But also, when we talk about the cloud operating model, this is the kind of scale that's informing our, our thoughts and the services that we're building and the way we want you to approach that. So now I'm going to talk about observability. Uh, if you're in the monitoring space at all and, and listening to monitoring vendors, you're hearing a lot about this term. I think my favorite definition is from Baron Schwartz at Vivid Cortex. And the way he puts it is that monitoring lets you know your system is working, but observability lets you ask why when it isn't working. And there's a few obvious reasons why this is a key to success. I think the you know, distributed microservices architecture and the, the a dynamic fleets of ephemeral resources. These are obvious reasons why this is really important. I think there's a few that are maybe less important. Uh, one is that when you're dealing with observability at the scale we're talking about, you almost always have high cardinality data of some type. And then second, the speed and efficiency that you can access data is key, because when something isn't working, you need to be able to know why very quickly. So CloudWatch is our observability solution for AWS. The journey with CloudWatch starts with collecting this observability data. We make this really easy with extensive integrations with many AWS services that gives you metrics, logs, and events, often without you having to do anything at all. And of course, we have APIs when you want to do your own custom versions of those. And next, we monitor. We need to know if the system's working. Uh, this really starts with th things like CloudWatch alarms, where you can configure metrics and thresholds that alert you when, when something's gone wrong. But it also is our dashboard product. So we have customizable dashboards. We have automatic dashboards. We have tools like Container Insights that let you see and visually assess whether your application or service is healthy. Now, when something isn't working, and hopefully we know why, we need to act. And so this is where automation comes in. And we do this with things like built-in alarm actions to uh, EC2 instance actions or SNS notifications or even triggering a systems manager automation document. And then finally, across all of this, we know that this data is, is a huge data set. It's growing exponentially. And you need more and more tools to be able to access it. And so we've launched things like CloudWatch Metric Math and Logs Insights. Now, no discussion of CloudWatch is really complete without mentioning our partner ecosystem. I've, I mentioned just five of some of the, the larger ones here, but this is a long, long list of partners. We work very closely with these partners so that they can integrate with CloudWatch in the most efficient way and bring their own unique value-add solutions on top of the observability data that lives in CloudWatch. 
So now for some of our key launches. So in Q3 of this year, we launched Container Insights. This is a solution that helps you monitor and troubleshoot any containerized applications running in ECS, EKS, and Fargate. It's a fully managed service with one-click onboarding that gives you aggregated metrics and logs about your containerized applications. Next, in Q4, we launched Anomaly Detection. This is a service that uses machine learning to analyze trends in your application and system metrics and establish a normal baseline, and then you're able to use that baseline to plot as a prediction band on your dashboard or also to configure a CloudWatch alarm that triggers when your metric goes outside of that prediction band. Next, just in the last few weeks, uh, this is a top customer ask from our customers, was cross-account and cross-region dashboards. So now any team can create a rich dashboard that includes metrics, logs, and alarm information from any account in any region. This is enabled through IAM roles, which enables any account to share with other accounts or even with an entire organization. Now this next one, I, I'm not sure, but I think we might have risked the, the naming humor wrath of Corey Quinn on Contributor Insights, but we actually did spend a lot of time to come up with a, the name that we really wanted to capture the, the value we we're trying to provide. And in this case, if you remember, I talked about the challenge of high cardinality data. So this is things like customers for web services or maybe devices in an IoT application. Traditional, traditional metrics and logging systems don't do particularly well with that data. And this is why we built Contributor Insights. So the way it works is in real time, it identifies things like outliers or top talkers to the things that are contributing to the performance of your application and service. So I encourage everybody to go try that out. And then Dave already previewed this one, but this is one we're really excited about. So Service Lens is a fully managed service that helps you assess the availability, the health, and the performance of your applications and services. It's a true observability solution that brings together metrics and logs data from CloudWatch with trace data from X-Ray and a new feature in CloudWatch called CloudWatch Synthetics that brings end-user monitoring via canary testing. So you've seen the service map in action a little bit, but this highlights visually key information about latencies and faults, errors right in the service dashboard. The service dashboard dynamically updates as your application changes. Okay, I'm gonna move on to compliance and auditing and talk CloudTrail and Config for a minute. So AWS CloudTrail is a service that logs, monitors, and retains API activity in your AWS accounts. Once you enable this, you automatically get a trail of management events in an S3 bucket of your choosing, and then you can choose to opt in to other data event sources such as S3 or Lambda based on the needs of your application and service. Customers use CloudTrail for things like operational troubleshooting, compliance auditing, security analysis, and, and many other use cases. Now, if you remember from our stats slide, we talked about there's a lot of CloudTrail data. You're using a lot of API calls, and we wanted to do something to help customers be able to understand how to look at what's important in there. So we're happy to announce CloudTrail Insights. This is a service that uses machine learning to analyze your CloudTrail events and surface unusual activity in those events. The way this works is when it identifies unusual activity, it's gonna produce a new type of event called an insight event that'll just be part of your CloudTrail that you can go investigate. So for example, if we're using, uh, if we notice that there's an unusual spike in terminate instance events, we'll surface one of these insight events for you to investigate later. So this is a great way to automatically get insight into unusual activity in your API calls. And then config. So config is a service that helps you to assess and validate the configurations of your resources. There's really three parts to config. First, we continuously monitor the configuration of your resources. Second, you get to write policies that determine what a valid or a compliant state of that resource is. And then last, you can associate remediation actions to take when it's not. 
So again, very similar to CloudTrail, the use cases, but customers use it for configuration management, obviously, but also, again, security auditing, risk auditing, and compliance verification. Now for some config launches. So first, um, we announced an automatic remediation with config rules. So this is really exciting in terms of how easy we've made this. This was possible to achieve before, but you would have had to write your own CloudWatch event rules and play some custom Lambda code. Now this is built natively into AWS config so that when you define a policy, you can define a remediation actions to trigger once we see a resource that's not in compliance. And to make it even easier, we have a library of over 140 built-in rules, and we'll be growing that over time. Next, conformance packs really helps you to achieve configuration management at scale. So a conformance pack is a collection of config rules, and then we allow you to deploy that as a unit across an entire organization. So this is a great tool when you want to baseline your configuration practices across an organization, or possibly just deploy a set of best practices across your organization. And then last, config now supports external resources. So this works through integration with CloudFormation Registry that Dave mentioned. Any resource that you can model in CloudFormation Registry, you can now monitor with config and get the same. We monitor the configuration of those resources, can set policies, and even remediation actions. And so customers are using this for things like GitHub repositories and Active Directory servers and already getting a lot of value by the ability to extend beyond just AWS resources and AWS config. Now we're going to talk about our operations cockpit that's part of our management and governance portfolio, which is Systems Manager. So this is a tool that allows you to visualize and control resources. So it's really about when you're wanting to take action on your resources. It works by letting you define groups of resources and then view data or take actions against those groups of resources. Just a few of the, the key attributes here. It works in any environment, so it's not just AWS. It works in AWS, on-premises, or other environments. It's open, the, the core agent that drives systems manager agents available on our GitHub repository. Multi-platform works with Windows and all forms of Linux. And then really systems manager is the hub for our automation. For launches here, uh, Ops Center was something we launched just a few months ago. This lets you trigger uh, things called operational work items. So when there's something that needs to, to happen, somebody needs to take some type of action, you can track that with an Ops item in Ops Center. And we're excited to announce Ops Center Explorer, which is a new configurable dashboard for Ops Center that lets you visualize the state of your resource groups and open operational work items. And then it's configurable with things like patch compliance and system configuration information or application configuration information. Next, App Config is a new systems manager feature that lets you quickly and safely deploy application configurations. So think about these configurations as things that you want to deploy more quickly than a traditional software deployment. So things like feature access flags or account whitelists are good examples. It enables you to do this quickly and securely with features like syntactic and semantic checking with deployment velocity controls and with rollback support. And then finally, playbook automation. This is a, a significant enhancement to our automation document capability. We've added support for Python and PowerShell scripts in addition to the actions that you could always take, like making API calls or taking approvals. We've also added markdown support for documentation to make your playbooks more readable and shareable. So this is a really powerful way to leverage automation you already have in place from your Python and PowerShell scripts. And so with that, we've covered a lot of ground, covered over 15 services, and talked about a lot of innovation. So I'm really excited to bring up Tristan Baker, Chief Architect with Intuit, to talk about how they're using these at scale. Thank you very much. Tristan, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the great content. 
Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about everything that we just saw and how we've put it into practice it into it. So um, as I was introduced, my name is Tristan Baker. I'm the uh, chief architect and, um, uh, of Intuit's data platform. And among other things, we create uh, Intuit's data lake, uh, Intuit's stream processing platform, ML platform, um, a persistence platform as well. Uh, so a number of different services, but the one I'm going to highlight today uh, is our data lake. Um, so to give you a sense of the data lake as a portion of all of Intuit, I pulled together a few numbers that I hope are a little bit illustrative. So um, uh, the data lake consists of 165 at the moment, uh, 165, as probably as I'm sitting here talking to you, it just ticked up to 166 um, AWS data lake accounts. And that is out of 2,000 total at the whole company. Um, we have about 500 active data lake users, about, uh, out of about 4,000 total AWS users at the whole company. And actually, as Intuit moves uh, more towards a, a data-driven culture, um, I expect pretty much everybody at the company to be a data lake user, meaning that they're leveraging Intuit's data and the power to process it to gain insights and make decisions about um, the systems they're creating, the businesses decisions they make, et cetera. So I expect that number will be increasing rapidly over the next months and years. Um, our data lake is about seven petabytes, as measured by uh, bytes of data in S3. Um, there's 40 petabytes at the whole company across all of our S3 buckets. Um, and there's even more data than that across EBS drives and other storage mechanisms. Um, and then uh, to give you an idea of the compute, we have about 7,500 EMR clusters spun up and down every day. And that's out of about 50,000 EC2 instances um, across the entire Intuit fleet. So depending on what dimension you pick, it's anywhere between I don't know, a few percentage to maybe 10% of the size of the whole company. Uh, so managing it, uh, both managing all of these resources across the whole company and then specifically managing something called a data lake is a challenge. Um, the primary AWS services we use, this is more about what's, what we use in the data lake, is kind of listed at the bottom here. It's uh, S3, Amazon, uh, EMR, SageMaker, um, Athena and Redshift. And Athena and Redshift we've been using uh, uh, more heavily more recently. We expect that number to increase as well. Um, so we, we do have a standard issue framework. As Dave was saying, many customers, I don't think we're an exception here, uh, leverage both AWS native capabilities as well as third-party capabilities as well as stuff that we build ourselves. Um, and this is a, uh, a selection of Intuit built things that some of my colleagues and, and uh, my colleague teams have built, things that I've built with our Data Lake team, um, and then things that our, our third parties and AWS are solving for us. Um, some of them I can list specifically, others I just give you a generic name, maybe you can use your imagination. Um, we have uh, sort of the, the top stripe there is um, a developer portal that we've built in-house that is the front landing page for all Intuit developers to find out what they can create, what they've already created, and how to get access to the more deeper information required. The second stripe there um, is kind of our, our build uh, and deploy frameworks, uh, some of the tools we use. Um, the stripe below that then is about operate, uh, which we've talked about a little bit already, and those are some of the third-party providers that we use to uh, get insight into the operating uh, nature of our stack. And then uh, everything below that is kind of about our run times. Uh, Intuit is moving and heavily on uh, IKS. It's Intuit's Kubernetes service, uh, which is really core Kubernetes with Intuit's uh, policies around network and security built in. Um, and then uh, there's uh, the bottom uh, stripe there talks again about Amazon EMR, uh, SageMaker Redshift, that's kind of the core of our data lake, uh, and then all the governance services that we've listed before, we use many of those as well. <clears throat> so uh, to give you an idea of what we use some of those governance services for, uh, I've listed a little bit about um, you know, some of the, the services and then and the things that we actually uh, leverage them for. So, uh, 
anything that was released like an hour ago, we're probably not using, uh, but anything that's been out for a little bit longer than that, we've probably taken a look at uh, and have started to leverage it. So uh, service catalog and cloud formation um, is used heavily, and I'll be drilling into that in more detail um, because I think we were one of the earlier and heavier users of that to manage the vending of um, or compute and other uh, resources into our data lake environments. Um, so we deploy curated governed patterns and there's a, a lot of value in our core expert team uh, understanding how to run EMR, understanding how to run SageMaker uh, the way that we like to, and then we take away that complexity from the people that actually need it running. Um, so they get uh, a template that they can deploy. Um, uh, we use AWS organizations um, uh, when we vend our accounts. Uh, we're not using Control Tower, uh, our vending solution predated Control Tower, but I'm sure we'll be moving to it or looking at it seriously in the future. Uh, when we do vend accounts, we vend them into different organizations and we're able to uh, push policies across a broad swath of accounts. Um, we use config and configure rules in a very similar manner to what was described earlier uh, to respond to misconfigurations. Uh, and we leverage that in conjunction with a tool called uh, Cloud Custodian, which is an open source framework um, that puts kind of a DSL on top of config and config rules. So if you uh, search for that, you'll find um, a reference to that architecture. Uh, we use service control policies, again, to prevent known uh, or bad and malicious configurations from making it out there in the first place. Uh, WAF and firewall manager to pro provide perimeter security and control. Um, AWS systems manager we use heavily for uh, license compliance. Uh, or license management compliance across those 50,000 EC2 instances I mentioned previously. And then CloudWatch metrics, logs, and CloudTrail are all evidence of things that have occurred, um, and we can use those for both after the fact, um, you know, manual investigation of something that needs to be looked at more closely. It's also things that we can set up automation based on, um, and uh, I'll highlight some of that um, in some of the slides going forward. Um, so to give you a little sense about like, how this is used in our data lake, it might help to understand what the data lake looks like, at least at 10,000 feet. Um, and a lot of this content um, is pulled from a blog, um, which is posted, that we uh, co-wrote with AWS, so it's posted on AWS. Um, uh, you can look that one up and you'll get a lot of this, plus a little bit more detail than I'm able to go into today. Uh, but it, uh, our data lake is a uh, hub and spoke model. Um, which means that we've got kind of a central data lake account where our central shared data lake services live. Uh, for instance, uh, a Hive Metastore, which is a catalog that keeps track of all the table definitions across all the data, across all the S3 buckets that make up the data lake. Um, and then we vend client processing accounts. Um, at the moment, N is 165, but it's ticking up probably again. We've just moved to 167. Um, and these, uh, so the challenge, of course, is then how do you do that quickly? Um, and then once you do it, how do you make sure that it looks, uh, how does that account uh, continue to look the way that you thought it did when you deployed it? Um, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. I also wanted to give you uh, a deeper look at what a processing account looks like in this model. Uh, so this is kind of a double click on one of the boxes up there. Um, and we do have some of that um, uh, provisioning automation that I mentioned earlier. And so when we automate the provisioning of one of these accounts, these are some of the things that we do using things like uh, CloudWatch and Config Rules. We make sure that uh, unauthorized sitters uh, in inbound security groups, groups are avoided, that public S3 buckets uh, policies and ACLs are set up correctly, that particular IAM user console access is constrained, um, that unencrypted S3 buckets, EBS volumes, and Amazon RDS instances don't pop up. Uh, we have uh, a lot of um, 
standards that we enforce around data encryption and uh, data security. And a lot of that is enforced uh, in the way that we vend the account initially and then continue to monitor it and make sure that it stays in that state uh, going forward. And then, uh, so, there's, so there's the core infrastructure of the uh, processing accounts, like the uh, VPCs and the subnets and the load balancers and the keys and the roles. We don't expect those to change very frequently. But what we do expect to come up and down very frequently are SageMaker and EMR. Um, so those things are made available through service catalog portfolios. So we have an engineering team that I work with on our data lake team that uh, spends a lot of time making sure that the SageMaker, the EMR, and even other just software running on EC2 instances that is needed to keep these things running smoothly, that all of that is uh, designed to work well together, to be secure, to be efficient in both cost and performance. Um, and it, it's nothing that anybody else really wants to deal with. When you're talking about data engineers and data scientists, they want to be productive. They want to solve business problems. They need access to data. They don't need to spend a lot of time figuring out how to get things working, um, or at least not at the infrastructure level. Uh, so we leverage, um, uh, heavily leverage service catalog and SageMaker, I'm sorry, service catalogs uh, to deploy SageMaker and EMR uh, from these provision templates. <clears throat> and uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you're deploying 7,000 or so uh, EMR instances daily, um, that automation pays, its, uh, pays for itself pretty quickly. Um, so the um, SageMaker, uh, like I said, we, we deploy provisioned SageMaker templates, um, provisioned EMR templates. And so those templates handle things like uh, configuration of keys, um, Splunk logging, into specific RPMs are uh, deployed. Connectivity to the central services. I mentioned HMS, the Hive Metastore, is a service that lives in our central data lake account. Um, so among other things, every one of these accounts needs to be able to talk back to that. Um, so that is set up as well. Uh, billing tags and IAM roles are also there so we can manage cost and access controls uh, sort of universally. Uh, uh, to give you an example or a feel for what we do with EMR, um, Amazon, Amazon EC, uh, EC2 instant profiles uh, are enabled on every EMR to control access to S3. Uh, we um, set up access to AWS KMS, bootstrap actions to enable connectivity to central data lake services, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the more challenging things that we have to do or that we had to do and now isn't as challenging anymore is uh, Kerberizing EMR so that we have um, uh, secure sessions that users can start when they land on their EMR. Uh, they can K-init, um, connect to our LDAP, um, exchange to uh, tokens and get a Kerberos token and then start their session. Um, the last thing I'll say then is the EC2 instances. We have scheduling agents, um, so whenever uh, jobs need to be periodically run um, because new data arrives. That's managed through a scheduling agent, and that scheduling agent is a third-party piece of software um, that might make sense in a, in a marketplace that and we could figure out a different way of doing this potentially more effectively. Uh, but at the time, and still today, we uh, vend this through Service Catalog. Um, and then this is even more specific in case the, uh, you wanted to get down to this level of detail. Um, this is just a, a simple example of some of the things you're able to do uh, with the myriad of services that AWS makes available. So at the top right, what we're trying to produce is a SageMaker, um, uh, SageMaker notebook that has, among other things, inherited the user's role. And on the far left, what we have as input is a user who is uh, in the role that they have assumed, and they're going to click on a button uh, to launch that SageMaker template. 
um, from the service catalog. And so what we can kind of do here is using some of the tricks with Amazon CloudWatch and rules, we can say, okay, well, when, when you see the provision product API show up on the CloudWatch, um, trigger a Lambda function that's gonna pull the user's role out of uh, the details that come along with that uh, log message and put it in parameter store. And then in the CloudWatch um, uh, stack, we say there's a custom step that fires a Lambda function that sits there and waits to see that parameter show up in the parameter store. And so at that point, you're then able to sort of say, hey, this user deployed this stack. Um, I'm gonna use the user's role um, as the last little bit of information I need to fill in the blank here in this uh, CloudFormation template. And then what you end up with is a SageMaker template where the user didn't have to tell you what role they would like the SageMaker template to assume. Uh, you know which one it is because it is the role that they are assuming when they're launching the, the uh, template to begin with. And there's probably a million other tricks you can do as well, but this is one of the ones uh, that we stumbled across and is, have found it to be a pretty effective way of setting up roles, at least for some of these SageMaker uh, components. Um, so what has the impact of this been? Uh, well, as you can imagine, I sort of alluded to it already, the productivity uh, when you automate uh, both the provisioning and automate the continuous monitoring and control of these things um, is pretty substantial. So when we first started our data lake journey, as you imagine, you want to create a data lake at the same time everybody wants to use it. And when you don't have one, it's hard to figure out what it is you're actually gonna do. And so of course, the automation comes later. The first thing you do is you get the data up, you get the, uh, at least some users uh, with the ability to access data. And then you figure out how painful it is to do this the next time the next team shows up. Um, so I do remember very vividly in the first months and weeks of our uh, data lake journey, we were spending, you know, a small team of engineers spending two weeks per provisioned account to get one of these things set up and spending almost as much time per provisioned um, EMR instance to get one of these things set up. But with the automation and with the uh, follow-on of the configuration controls, uh, they gave us confidence that once we automated its initial deployment, from that point forward, it was continued to look the way we wanted it to. Uh, we were able to move these things down into button clicks that the user could do themselves, and then they're made to be, by the time they get up and get a cup of coffee and come back down, they've got everything they need. Um, so we're literally shaving orders, multiple orders of magnitude off the amount of time it takes to stand some of these things up. And then, uh, not to go unmentioned, is the benefit um, in the neighborhood of security. Um, it's uh, what we've essentially done, and what we partnered with a security team to do, sort of say, okay, here's our data lake use cases, here's the things we wanna use, here are all the security controls and standards that we need to meet. Um, let's review the pattern of the solution that we're about to templatize. Uh, we, we sit down, we review those patterns once, we review the primary architecture once. Once that's approved, essentially rubber stamps of that same thing must then also be approved. Um, so you can put the rubber stamp then in service catalog and you get the, uh, the, the ability to review the pattern once, not the individual deployments each time. Again, we're saving a ton of time, but also we're getting, it's not just time savings at this point, it's also delivering much more secure applications and, and architectures than we could have otherwise. Um, and again, now our limited engineering resources, both security engineer and infrastructure engineering resources, are spending more time working on harder problems. Uh, so what's next? Um, now, I, I might actually have to update this slide based on all the new stuff that we saw today, but at least coming into this thing this morning, I thought the next things we were gonna do uh, would be, uh, detection and remediation of access uh, policy drift. Um, now there was S3 access points announced this, mor uh, this morning, so I'm gonna have to go update this slide with that. I need to go look at that one. Um, but uh, the ability to detect not just is the infrastructure secure, but are the, uh, the stated roles uh, of a user's particular access against the stated policies that are in a bucket, 
Do those align with what was approved a couple of weeks ago when John, the user, asked for access to Jane's data? Um, uh, and then uh, we've got a bunch of other things in here as well. I'm running out of time, so I won't go into all of them explicitly. Uh, but plenty of things to look at across um, uh, a number of the AWS configuration, or I'm sorry, the AWS governance and management services. Um, and then finally, I want to plug uh, another session if you, uh, a colleague of mine is delivering, I guess, uh, tomorrow and Thursday. Um, this goes into much more detail about our uh, data lake migration journey. Um, so uh, it goes into a lot of the detail around how to manage and move a bunch of, uh, in this case, Spark and Hive workloads from an on-premise data center into our data lake, which was quite, you know, which was another huge portion of the work that we did in our data lake journey. So I'd invite you guys to go check that out, and that's all for my time. So I'll hand it back over here to Dave. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yep. Okay, um, we want to wrap up really quickly. I've got a couple more slides, and then we'll let you go. Um, hopefully, we've given you a lot of thought-provoking ideas between how to think about best practices when you're enabling accounts for long-term scale of how you're going to provision resources at the provisioning layer, and then Bob gave you insight on some of the new capabilities to operate at scale with the right level of observability, and then how we actually allow you to manage those resources really well, both across AWS and frankly, in an on-prem hybrid mode with a lot more of what we're doing with Systems Manager. Now, on top of that stack, there's going to be a deep set of sessions following up. So if you want to take a note of any of these particular sessions, you'll get detailed sessions on, on a service catalog topic or an operations topic. And so please think of those as other workshops. And then finally, we do also lay on top of all of our services a professional services set of capabilities plus partners who are certified to deliver this competence. And so our professional services organization have an O&I practice, which is an operations and infrastructure practice. And we deliver engagements to many customers around the world to bring your skills up to speed, or we'll certify a partner. And we have a whole bunch of partners that are certified over management and governance, which is a competency. And these are just examples of the training, the certification, and the skill transfer that we can give you in your transformation journey. So look, hopefully we're building your confidence to move your application portfolio onto the cloud, get the benefits of velocity, develop faster, and help your organization improve your customer experience, reduce costs, and be agile and be well-governed. Thank you.